going to arrange this. Just give me a moment to... We didn't put this on wheels, for obvious reasons. Uh, well, welcome, everyone. My name's Mark. I'm the rector here, the senior pastor. And it's lovely to have you here. And I've just been down at the 9 o'clock service, and um, I love what God is doing in our church. Uh, because while I was down there, we had all these young families hanging out the back, talking about parenting. And then I walked in, and there was no car parking available at all. And I thought, we need a stacker here, or underground parking, or something. And then I walked in, and there's just so much energy in life. And I was like, oh, this is so good. You know, how great is this? So uh, thanks for being at church this morning. And... Um, it's just wonderful. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to think a little bit about uh, this text. Lord God, um, uh, unlike the person who tore half of it out from that page in Scripture, this is really important stuff. So uh, help us to think about it, and not just to think about this, but to, to actually let it change our lives. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. So we're looking at... Uh, this passage of the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount, the other way you can think about it is Jesus' manifesto for living. Like, so what our church is about, I've been thinking a lot about this, what we offer is to help you connect with God and to help you live a great life the way Jesus said you should. So that's it. It's really simple. Like Church is very simple. We'll help you connect with God wherever you are on your journey and then help you live a great life. And we're all on that journey ourselves. So I'm here. I've been following Jesus since I was 15. I'm paid to be here, professionally religious. Um, but I'm here to connect with God as well. And I'm here to learn how to follow him and live a great life. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, we're going to think about that this morning. And I want to start by saying we've just had a... Uh, he's not here, is he? No. Oliver, our son, finished year 12 last year. And those of you who've had kids or no kids who've gone through this, what's the most common question? Everyone asks a child in year 12. What are you going to do next year? Okay, what are you going to do? And what's the most common answer most kids give? I don't know. Isn't that right? That is, what are you going to do? I don't know. What am I going to do with my life? I don't know. Um, that's, there's so many options, so much, and so much confusion, so many pressures, so many different answers. What are you going to do? I don't know. Fast forward 25 years, and I speak to many people who are, uh, you know, my stage of life, mid-30s, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in your, in your late 40s and 50s, and, and you speak to folk and you go, what are, you know what, they're asking the same question. What am I going to do with my life? Right? You've been at your career for 25 years. You've hit certain heights. You've done this. You've got your kids. You've got your house. You've done your thing. And then you're like, oh, well, what's next? Do I just do this for another 20 years? Like, what do I do? Right? And along the way, that journey can be interrupted by sickness or setbacks, and you go, oh, now what do I do with my life? Maybe everything I thought that would happen isn't going to happen. Maybe, maybe I'm, you know, unexpectedly I'm battling with mental illness or someone in my family has become an addict or um, I've had cancer and everything that I thought would happen hasn't happened. And then you fast forward from your, your midlife to, to your later life and, you know, what the question is, maybe you look back and you go, well, what was all that about? What was the purpose of it? What did, what did I actually achieve? What did I do? Well... Uh, the good news for this morning is I'm going to tell you exactly what your purpose in life is. Well, not really me. I'm going to tell you what Jesus thinks your purpose in life is. And it's both really simple 
and really not. So um, before you get super excited that I'm going to tell you exactly what job you should do or, or what your kids should do with their lives, um, uh, it's not going to be quite that specific, but it's going to be really helpful. So this is, this is our purpose in life. According to Christianity, according to Jesus, our purpose in life is nothing less than to heal and renew and transform the world. That's it. Like, just go and do that, right? Change the world. And, and in particular, how are we to change the world? You see, do you remember, uh, it, I don't know where you all are in your spiritual journey, you probably remember the Lord's Prayer, right? When I was at school back in Africa, we used to have every school assembly, we'd pray the Lord's Prayer. And there's this little line in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus followers had asked him, give us an example of how to pray Jesus. And he'd said, this is how you should pray. And in that, he'd had this little line where he said, we need to pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. How do you think that's going to happen? It's through us. <laughs> that's the whole point of Jesus' manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. How is God's will, which is done in heaven, the sphere of his effective rule, where everything works, where it's a, it's a community of love and justice and mercy and truth and no suffering and no heartache and just beauty and glory. And uh, How is that going to be manifest here? Well, through you and through me as we follow Jesus. And this has been God's plan all along, that he's going to work through people in this world to push back the forces of injustice and deceit and suffering, and death itself. What does Jesus say? He says, how does he put it? He, he's, he's talking to his followers, and he says, this is what you've got to do. He says, you are salt of the earth. Uh, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And then he says, you are light of the world. He says, how are you going to make sure in this world that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven? You're going to do it. And he uses these two everyday common metaphors. He says, you're going to do it by being salt and by being light. And you go, okay, that's exciting, Mark. How do I get to be salt? And what does salt do? Well, think about it. What, what is the role of salt in the world commonly? Maybe not in an era of refrigeration. It does two things. It, it fills, fills things with flavor, and it stops the rot, right? It stops the rot. And he says, that's our job. We're to bring flavor to the world, but more fundamentally than that, our job, if we follow Jesus, is to stop the decay and the rot in the world. That's, salt is extremely effective at that. I was going to... Uh, what's, what's the... What's the best way, what's the best food, the tastiest food in the world? It's, it's a South African delicacy called biltong. It's called biltong. Now, what is biltong? I was going to buy a whole bunch of biltong and hand it out, but it's so expensive here, I thought, just imagine biltong. Okay. Now, what is, it's like beef jerky if you're American, and it's awful stuff. But so what is biltong? Well, you go, so to get, get a bit of biltong, what you do is you go out onto the felt, and you go and you go go hunting, and you find a lovely animal, and you shoot it because uh, you're you know because you're going to starve otherwise, and you're trekking up again you know, and and then you skin it, and you take the meat, and you can't eat the whole animal. You want to preserve some of it to eat later. So what do you do? You cut it into strips. You take a bunch of coarse salt, and you rub the salt in it, really all over. Rub the salt in. And then you hang it up to dry, and if it dries thoroughly and it's properly salted, that biltong, that meat will last indefinitely. 
That's what happens, right? And it's amazing. And someone made a joke back. Do you want to share that with the rest of us? No, no. So it's, um, that's what salt does. It's a preservative. And uh, God is saying to us, that's our job, to be preservatives. Now, you might not think, you might not like the imagery of the world being rotten and needing preserving. But, but really, if we stop and think about it, right, um, actually, the, the inevitable direction that the world travels in is downwards or backwards. Like our tech gadget has shown this. It shouldn't fail. It's only three years old. Why have we got this intermittent fault? But that is actually just what happens all the time. Have any of you ever tried to grow a lawn? Okay, so what happens with lawns? Let me ask you this question. Does, does your beautiful buffalo grass grow more quickly than the weeds? Or do the weeds grow more quickly and easily than the grass? Which grows better? The weeds. I'm telling you, I've got the theory, by the way, that it's actually, it's actually Satan and demons who are, they scatter the, the, the weed seed everywhere. I'm telling you at night, if you looked around, there'd be little demons there just fertilizing the weeds. That's the only way it can possibly work, I reckon. There's just weeds everywhere. You leave a garden alone and the weeds grow, not the plants and the grass. Our lives are a bit like that. We have this ineluctable tendency to mess things up don't we like left to our own devices we don't jump out of bed and be healthy and look after our bodies and care for the poor and love others like left to our own devices we sleep in and we don't floss and we eat sugar and we binge watch netflix and we do as little as we can and we're selfish um yeah that's my children you know not, not me of course you know not your children, they're more spiritually evolved, I'm sure. But that's us, hey? And God says, and, and you know this in your workplace, does your, if you go away for a week, does your workplace just get automatically better without any positive leadership or influence? No, it just, you know, you leave people alone long enough and we'll mess it up. And so God's plan for your life and for mine is to say in this system that winds down and messes up, We've got to be people who hold back the chaos, who pull out the weeds, who stop the decay, stop the deterioration, who bring, so Newton's second law of thermodynamics, in every closed system tends towards entropy. Everything winds down. But it's not a closed system, our world, because it's actually open to God, and we are those who are to bring God's energy into this world to stop the entropy, to stop the decay. So that's our purpose, to be salt. Uh, and uh, the thing about salt is to have any effect, it's got to be rubbed into the meat. So for us to have an effect, we need proximity to the decay. We need to be massively involved in our world to see the weeds, spot the injustice, stand against it. The second metaphor Jesus uses, he says, we're the light of the world. You know, what does light do? Well, it, it illuminates. It shows us the nature of the way the world really is, and that enables us to live well in the world. So our job is to be little reflectors. The Bible also says God is light, so we are reflectors of God's light in the world. Um, and that's really, really important because this is what's going to help people live well in the world. The alternative is uh, the Bible says we live in darkness, right? 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you what that looks like. And this may, I don't think it's controversial. Um, we live mostly in our culture in a world where we think that the material is all that there is. I talked about this last week as the nothing buttery world. There's nothing but atoms, particles, progress, nothing but what you can see, taste, touch, feel, and smell. And if we think that's all there is, that shapes how we live. Now, we believe from God that, in fact, there's a whole spiritual world uh, of, um, of mind and feeling and of God and of angels and of demons. There's a whole spiritual reality uh, outside of time and going ahead of time that, that people don't understand and don't see. And because they don't see it, they can't live well in the world because they're, they're missing out on a whole massive element of society, right, of, of the way reality is. And so our job is to shine God's light into this world so people can understand reality the way it is and therefore live in the light of that. It's a bit like uh, if, you, if you didn't believe in gravity and you kept, you know, actually this couldn't really work, but in your tri- if, you're, if you're a tribal group who didn't believe in gravity and everyone kept jumping off cliffs and dying, and then someone came along and said, hang on, hang on, whoa, 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 wait, gravity exists. You're always, inevitably, 100% of the time, if you jump off a cliff, you're going to die. You can stop this experiment now. You'd be shining light about the truth of the way the world works to help this group think about how to live well. So don't jump off a cliff, because it's never going to be any different. Jump off a cliff, die. Jump off a cliff, die. And so, spiritually, the light we shine is that there's a God. And this world isn't all there is. And this God loves you. And, and we're not in a closed system. And death is not the end. Like that's the light that we shine to help people understand that so that they can live well and flourish in this world. Uh, that's God's purpose and plan for your life, right? So what I thought to, uh, and now you say, well, that's all great. Um, I've got to ask Dan and Belinda to come on up. I thought just to, Kimberly, sorry, what am I saying? Uh, there's too many dads. Sorry, Kim. Who did that to me? Kimberly, I know. Thanks. Thanks, Kimberly and Dan. Come on up and uh, maybe grab this microphone. Come on up. It's on. I did introduce myself at the start of the. Did you? So everybody yeah, knows. I it's did. just. Mm-hmm. We've met a few times. We have met. <laughs> It's very embarrassing, isn't it? Did I do it last week as well? Uh, well, maybe you just have a church name, right? Maybe yeah. I'll give you my saint name. Your saint name, yeah. Saint Belinda. That's saint very Catholic. Belinda. Yeah, I was con- when I was confirmed as a Catholic, I-, I took the name Francis. So you could call me Francis, and I'll call you Belinda. Okay, done. Okay, Saint Belinda. So Kimberly and Dan, uh, tell us just a little bit quickly about what you what you do with your lives vocationally. What do you do work wise? Uh, so I am a journalist at uh, a news reporter at Channel Ten, and Dan. Is a you can speak for me. No, 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 no. Uh, Cameraman, DOP. I work uh, in factual content production. Factual content production. That makes sense. He's a cameraman. He's a cameraman. That's beautiful. So you're in front of the camera. A really good one. A really, really Really good good cameraman. And you're a really good reporter. You stand in front of the camera. He stands behind the camera. Correct. Okay. So uh, I was very interested when I was thinking about this week to think about like the industry of being a journalist, working in production, working in doing news. You guys have been worked in various places around the world. I, I don't think of um, that environment or culture as being an easy place to be a person of faith. 
uh, or a follower of Jesus, what's it been like for you uh, to, f- to try and live as salt and light in the media and in that world? Uh, it's difficult. Um, the media is full of people who are very sceptical about religion. And you can understand why we cover cases where priests have abused children and royal commissions um, and, yeah, all, all sorts of things that are not well reflective of the church. Uh, more recently, it was the marriage equality debate, and I just don't think that was a very good PR exercise for the church really? as such. So, um, so I, I mean, in my, my role, is a little bit different to Dan's, but I suppose um, I'm just always seeking the truth in everything that I do. And while that is technically that's our job as news reporters is to seek the truth, we also have to put forward a very balanced view of everything. So you get one side of the story and then you get the other side of the story. Then you have to balance that up. And I'm constantly seeking the truth. And I, I, it's not necessarily that is my Christianity coming through, is that I'm constantly looking for what is the truth in this. Not necessarily let's, you know give this side the same amount of airtime as this side, but this is this is what they say, this is what they say, but what is the truth yeah. in all of this? That's cool. And has that always been easy for you, like with your peers and editors and others? Do they always go, yes, Kimberly, I totally agree with the balanced view you're taking on this matter? Uh, no, it's not. And I, and I discussed... <laughs> uh, I've had... Look, there's been so many scenarios where... Um, where I've been encouraged to take a certain angle. Um, we lived in China for a while and I, I worked for the Communist Party, effectively. I was the uh, Western face on their English news channel. Um, and it's just it's just churning up propaganda. Um, and in a way, just by being there, I was almost supporting that. But I also had the role of editor as well as uh, newsreader. So I was able to sub all of the scripts and I turned it into a very, very, very dry news bulletin because all I ever said was facts. If I said any more, I would have been sacked um, or I would have been churning out more propaganda. So I just turned it into a very factual thing. I managed to get away with it because I had built some pretty good relationships with um, the Chinese laoshes, they're called, the teachers, uh, effectively the Communist Party people who would rubber stamp everything as it went through. Uh, And that sounds like maybe not unexpected in a place like China, but it can happen here too. So even working at Channel 10, I was recently strongly encouraged to um, put forward a very pro-pill testing view in the pill testing debate uh, with regards to drugs at music festivals and I really stood my ground and I had strips torn off me from basically the top newsreader down Um, but I stood my ground and I think through the strong relationships that I have built with um, all of my colleagues I think I was able to just get away with it Um, but I did put put forward I got my way so that's good great Uh, Dan what's it been like for you behind the camera and yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess I my influence, like, on air is not that strong. Uh, just to touch on that, I used to edit a lot of um, stories and I would challenge when I... As in, you know, computer editing, editing the pictures and everything. Um, and where I could, I would challenge some things. But, you know, mostly it was, I guess, relationships for me. And um, I kind of have... I've always seen it as seed planting. Uh, Kimberly mentioned the sort of strong 
almost anti-religion sort of feeling in a lot of the media. Um, I've found as well there have been people that have come through and maybe tried to preach to people in the media as far as like other cameramen who are Christians or other journalists or whatever, and they're seen very much as like it's, it's a straight, you know, people put fences up, uh, put their barricades up straight away as soon as people mention religion or God or something like that. So I guess coming in to that sort of situation, I try and, I guess, let my light shine and not obviously hide anything but never force anything. Everything has to be done out of love when yeah. you're, when you're, I guess, being a... A light, yeah. um, and I feel that some people have not been doing it through love in the past, and that's why I've, I've found that people in 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 the in the media that I've come in contact with have have had much sort of abrasion to that yeah. sort of thing. So just trying to, I guess, you know, everybody knows, or people know, I would hope, I you know, that I go to church and my beliefs yeah. and that, um, but not never ramming it down people's throats. So yeah, trying to be a light, I guess. As much as I can. So, um, and does it help that you grew your hair, hair out to look like Jesus? Is this a is this a conscious strategy that you? Do you know, that's in, just in yeah, image? exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, no, I literally am one of the laziest people around. So right. I have one haircut every couple of years. Yeah, that's and good. then it just grows so back. It grows and, back. That's yeah. good. That's amazing. That's a it's a very Christian mm. approach. Um, uh, so. Is it important in your work that you actually do really good work, like for, to be salt and light? Like, is it in, like, do you strive for excellence in what you do? Is I that think, important? I think that's our personality. But, yeah, also, um, as Christians, I think you never want to be a lazy person. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, but I mean, yeah, like in what you do and, you know, you never want to have a bad attitude and that sort of thing. And you, I guess that's all part of that seed planting and being an yeah. example and, and that sort of thing and having a good attitude. I don't know. What do you think? What was the question again? Uh, is it important that you're actually good at your job, that you yeah, do it excellently? I do. I think it's very good and very important because I think that's part of building strong relationships and being respected. Yeah. And I want to be respe- respected for my work and for my, you know, having good relationships with people. Um, and then when I do want to stand my ground on a particular issue, I can because... I think I'm good at my job. So, yeah. yeah. That's great. Uh, well, thanks, guys, so much for making yourselves vulnerable and coming up and answering some questions. I hope that's been vaguely helpful for you to think about, well, how these guys live it out. This is the stuff we're going to think about for the next 10 minutes, and then we're going to have some sing again and have some coffee. So thanks, guys. Grab a seat. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, uh, save money, get one haircut a year. That's what I took out of that. Uh, that's so awesome. Thank you. Um, the question as we think about this act of being salt and light is a question about how we understand ourselves in the world. And the, you can ask yourself this question, am I to be, are we as followers of Jesus? Okay. Uh, what does a thermometer do? Tells the temperature of the system. If you thought of us as people in whatever system we were in, our family, our workplace, our city, our culture, what would it be for us to be uh, function like thermometers? Mm-hmm. 
what would it be like if we were just moral and spiritual thermometers? Yeah, whatever society was like, we would just reflect that. If, uh, you know, if society believed that lying was good, we'd believe that lying was good. If society thought um, welcoming refugees in was good, we'd think welcoming refugees in was good. So that's what it means to be a thermometer. Uh, what does a thermostat do? It controls the temperature. It sets the temperature, right? Uh, and so if we were to function as thermostats in our culture, what would our role look like there? We'd, we, we'd be changing the settings uh, and the temperature, the underlying temperature uh, of the culture, of the system, on a whole range of things, wouldn't we? Um, so uh, that's it's really significant. Now, um, it's much easier to be a thermometer than a thermostat, isn't it? Because everyone always fights over the settings of the thermostat, don't they? So when we were in Canada uh, some years ago, lived there for a few years, uh, you know, you, you needed heating in your house, otherwise you'd die, right? And, uh, and every family, there were, there were always battles over the thermostat settings. And, the, the, and, and the, one of the ways this would work out, you'd often have the bloke, the, the man of the house, and he might have grown up in somewhere like Winnipeg where it was like really, really cold, you know, like all on the prairies, unbelievably freezing cold. And they'd come down to Toronto where we were in southern Ontario, and they, they see oh, Toronto as mild, right? And he might have married a woman who'd grown up in southern Ontario, and, and her internal thermostat is very different to his. And, and he might also be a little cost-conscious. And so in his view, you delayed putting on the heating in your house uh, as long as you possibly could. So everybody else would be freezing, and he'd be like, well, you know, we're not going to put it on until, you know, October the 1st, and there's snow's fallen, and it's like five degrees below, but it's not time yet to put on the thermostat, on, to put on the heating. It's contested, those settings, and you fight over them. And, and that's true today, isn't it? It's as true in any little family as it is in any church, as it is in any workplace, as it is in our culture. What's normal? What do we accept as, as a standard of behavior and practice? And how do we do life together? Uh, and one of the, when you're a thermometer, you're always going to fit in. Orally or, you know, um, you're always going to fit in as a thermometer, right? Sorry, I shouldn't. That was just an image there. That's what thermometers do. They fit in, right? And, and they have to to do their job. Um, yeah, you got the joke now. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Probably shouldn't have said it. I thought it. I said it. <laughs> um, if you're a thermostat and it's contested, one of the reasons it's very hard to, to try and change a system is people might not like it. And here's what we need to acknowledge. We are primarily, primarily, primitively, evolutionarily, and theologically hypersocial animals. We are made to belong. And any threat to our belonging is, is a massive threat to our very survival. So changing the thermostat setting for group norms and behavior is a very risky business because the group might exclude you and go, no, we don't want you as part of this group if you're going to try and change us. And so it's, it's a problem. It's hard. It's risky. But we need to do it because that's what is involved. Now, what I find interesting in this text, being salt and light, 
is really functioning much more like a thermostat than a thermometer. It's, it's changing what is acceptable in our culture to, to hold back uh, the things that are destructive and to shine light on, on how we should live and draw people into that way of living. And it's hard. But that's what we're called to do. And it's not, I just want to say, it's not an optional extra, right? So when you look at this text, the, the calling to be salt and light, this purpose, comes straight out of this. It says, you are, you are the light, you are the salt. Jesus doesn't go, the really super religious got it all together amongst you. You might, on occasions, function as salt and light. He says, no, this is what you are. If you follow Jesus, you're going you're gonna to walk in this way, according to Jesus. Um, but that's hard. And let me tell you, I don't think it's getting any easier. Uh, if we think about our society being a thermostat, being salt and light and bringing God's truth and light into the society, what that means is we, we have to influence the world. Um, and there's lots and lots of challenges in doing that. I was thinking about a few, and, and the challenges are harder now than they were maybe a generation before because now we live in an increasingly polarized community where the gap between the, you know, the left and the right uh, and the identity politics that surround that are so pronounced that it's actually very hard for anyone in our society to have a sensible discussion about the actual issues and come up with policies and ideas and a vision for society that can unite people that isn't driven by identity politics. Like if you support me on this and if you don't support me on everything that I believe, then you're stupid and bad, possibly both. Uh, and anyone who's on in the other tribe uh, is, is obviously stupid and bad. And I thought about this and, and that, that affects the church. I see this regularly in what I post on Facebook. It's quite funny. Um, and I see the difference and the divide. And as Christians, it's very hard. So I thought about the things in our culture that, that w- where we need to be salt and light, right? Where, where I think these are massive social cultural issues that face us. So let me, let's, let's go through some of them, right? And I'll just put them out there, and then you'll see how complicated and hard it is. Uh, how about abortion? That's an unmentionable subject, right? Well, what do we think about that? At what point do we, you know, late-term abortion in Queensland or in the U.S.? Like, what do we think? What's, what's the role? What have we been doing as a church for the last 40 years? How do we, how do we deal with all the complexities of that? When, uh, when I, I know so many people, as do you, who've had abortions, and how do you show compassion and love to them? But deal with, like, where does life begin? Like, it's complicated, right? And it's not getting any easier. How do, what does salt and light look like there? And I know you've been raising that. It's going to be hard for some of us. Okay, there we go. What about climate change? There are those of us who think that the climate uh, is changing as a result of human uh, involvement and others who think it isn't, and a whole range of positions in between, and is the science really contested or isn't it, Uh, and then what do we do for climate change mitigation, and there are winners and losers, so is it really a catastrophe or isn't it, and what's the outcome, and how are we even going to do anything about it anyway, because we, like, oh, that's hard. I mean, even in this church, I can look around. We've had fun discussions around our kitchen table in our small group with divergent views on that. So how do you have a sensible discussion? How do we, what is the Christian response of salt and light in that context? What about global people movements? Like, what, what's our, what should our policy be on global people movements? Is, should we have an open policy for refugees? Anyone who wants to come and seek asylum in Australia should just come. Bring it on. Uh, 
you know, provide boats for them. Don't turn the boats back. Go meet them halfway so they don't drown and bring them on board. And anyone who wants to come, isn't that a Christian response? But what about the role of the government to secure our borders, to protect our national sovereignty, to stop the people smuggling trade, to maintain the process of, of proper vetting and, uh, and not benefit those who can pay people smugglers? What a, that's complicated, right? And what about, well, do we really want to let any, you know, jihadi Islamist into our country just because they say they came from Syria and they had a rough life and now they can come in and blow us up? Is that really what we want to do? But surely we can't discriminate on the basis of religion. I mean, governments can't do that. Or can they? Gosh, it's complicated and I'm sure you're trying to figure out what I think. Um, <laughs> what, about, um, what about things like... Uh, uh, genetic engineering, right? So uh, right now you can you can screen your your um, your, f your embryos for genetic uh, catastrophic genetic diseases. So we have friends who've had this had this very rare. Both of them carriers for it for a tragic genetic illness. They had two kids diagnosed with this illness. They then went and went through the IVF route, had their embryos screened. Uh, and were implanted with two healthy embryos and have two beautiful, healthy babies and two babies who are dying. And isn't that a good thing? Well, yes, but no. Because every in medicine what happens is pretty much everything that starts off to address a sickness or an illness ends up becoming an optional extra to enhance life. So what starts off to save life becomes an enhancement. Plastic surgery started off after the First World War to reconstruct the terribly d damaged soldiers uh, coming out back from the trenches, and then doctors realized they could also use it to uh, make people look better who weren't, you know, hadn't had half their faces blown off but just wanted to look better. So genetic engineering, we, we will see in the next, in, in the next 20 years uh, the, the technology to breed super kids, and that's going to be split around economic grounds. The rich will afford it, and it's already happening. You can, you'll, we'll be able to select for intelligence, blue eyes, blonde hair. You know, it's just modern-day eugenics. It's coming. So what's our view as Christians? Should we do that? Should we stop all genetic engineering now? Is that, do we have a voice? Where's the church on that? What's the salt and light view on that? Uh, how about uh, psychopharmacology? This ineluctable trend in our society to use chemicals to change our, how our brains work so that we're a little more docile, a little more peaceful, and we fit in and get along. Like, what's going on there? Should we have a view with the, across the developed world with this massive spike in teenagers on antidepressants and anti-anxiolytic anti drugs? Is there something there that we should be concerned about and think about and have a voice on and change how we do it? I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Or maybe it's a really good thing. Maybe we should ch just put antidepressants in the water. We've done it for fluoride. Why not just do it for our brain chemistry? It might be really good. Or it might not. I mean, who knows, right? We should think about this. What's our view? Um, what about um, global debt and the looming debt crisis? Where's the church been over the last 40 years as we've relentlessly driven by greed, lowered interest rates, and built a whole culture addicted to debt and the idea that in this great Ponzi scheme of the world's greatest asset bubble that's called the Australian housing uh, market, we can all get rich and it's always going to go on forever and there's going to be no harm come to anyone. Well, really, hang on, uh, the Bible has a view that the, the debtor is the slave to the creditor. So, like, what do we do with debt? Where's our voice on that? And as, the, as we go into the great un, uh, deleveraging, which, which has to happen, 
What do we do across the world as we enter a major recession, as, as people just can't spend anymore because there's no money, and the whole giant Ponzi scheme, Chinese economy, uh, Europe, we just have a deleveraging that's gonna, just going to be traumatic. You know, your house values could fall by 50, 60%. You'll be left with negative equity. Every investment property you have is going to be underwater. And you're going to lose your jobs. And then what do we do? And we all say, oh, that was terrible. Where were we 40 years ago when people were fiddling around with those policy levers? Where were the Christians? And should they even have had a say? And is my economic analysis right? You've probably got a glimpse on this issue, what I believe. Um, but I might be completely wrong. It's really complicated, isn't it? And people much smarter than me uh, have different views on, on how you, you know. There's a guy called Michael Schluter at Oxford. He's a Christian economist who argues very strongly that as Christians we should move away from a debt-based economy because it's not biblical and we should move, uh, he has some creative alternatives. Is that even possible? I don't know, it's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, I'm only getting started. Uh, human, how about this? It's complicated, right? Human sexuality, LGBTIAQ, uh, what do we do? Um, Man, it's, it's, it's hard, right? Martina Navratilova showed us just how impossible it is in the public's face to have a sensible discussion about this. Like the, the lady who absolutely castigated Margaret Court for her conservative views on human sexuality and called her an evil woman, now is having the same treatment heaped on her by transgender and being called transphobic and all the stuff. So you put your head above the parapet to argue for it seems like a reasonable solution, and you just get hammered. And that happens all the time. And if it can happen to Martina Navratilova, what, what's our role in that? How do we as a church respond to people whose sexuality is really broken? Like, yeah, that's complicated, right? It's, it's not easy. The problem with the, the, the marriage equality vote was they tried to make a very complicated issue, like a, a legislative one. But actually, it's just complicated in our families and in our church. And, and we're all a mess on that. So what's our view, right? Uh, how about domestic violence? Like, are we, are we really serious about that? Are we seeing it? Are we doing something about it? How do we stop it? Like, you don't... And do you stop domestic violence by teaching a generation of kids that every man's a potential rapist? Well, that doesn't seem right. And what about the Me Too? How is it... How can you... How can you is it right that we... You know, un, I mean, it's complicated, right? Like, a, a woman makes an allegation against a man and the guy's done for. And is that right? Is that any more right than the fact that getting a woman to even make an allegation historically has been almost impossible and securing a prosecution for sexual abuse or violence has been almost impossible? Like, that's not right either. So what do we do? Like, what's the Christian stance? How do we, how do we address those issues of justice and natural justice? That's complicated. Um, how about reconciliation with indigenous people? Do we need a treaty? Why don't we have a treaty? Shouldn't we have a treaty? How responsible are we for all the injustices and the pain and the suffering uh, that we've caused? Like the prosperity of our country is built on, um, you know, on the massacre of indigenous people. But were they doing so well before anyway? And maybe, maybe many of them have, have benefited enormously from colonization. Colonization is not always bad. It's the way of the world. Or is it? Maybe it's a, really is deeply a terrible thing, and we, we, you know, we, we should give the land back. What do we do with title? What do we do with stolen generation kids and, and the grandmas, the grannies who's, who, who were stolen generation, who now say that, that forced removal of kids from indigenous families is happening at a, at a higher rate than happened in the stolen generation era? Like, what do we do with that? Where's the Christian voice on that? Because actually some of those little kids are growing up uh, in profoundly addicted, violent, difficult situations, and they should be taken away, or should they? 
And what do we do? And where's the Christian voice on that? How do we think about that, right? Like it's really complicated. And, and we, we have to have a place where we can think clearly. Uh, and, and then if you go from that, what about just the everyday abuse of money, sex, and power in our homes, in our community? Like, what do we do with that? <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church? This is a light one, eh? So what we have to avoid, and I think what, what, what we have to avoid is this, the, the identity politic polarization in our culture and I think our witness to be salt and light in the first the starting place for us is to say we're a community who will avoid the polarizations of left and right because we follow we, we follow a different king our kingdom is the, the, the kingdom and the will and the rule of Jesus is not not left or right uh, and we've got to hold that and say, you know what, we're going to be a community where difference is allowed and celebrated and enjoyed because un until we can debate the immense complexity around these issues non-anxiously and calmly with an eye to outcomes, not intentions, we're never going to make any progress. And, and the vision of the church is to be a community where we actually are salt and light, which means we can't just buy identity politic or party politic solutions to very complex questions. Is a French lawyer and philosopher called Jacques Ellul, who was a, uh, fought in the resistance in France in the Second World War, and as a Christian, thought a lot about uh, the role of Christians in politics. And I found Ellul when I was growing up in South Africa, um, and became a follower of Jesus in the 80s, 80s and early 90s, in, under in apartheid South Africa, thinking about what is the role of Christians in this situation. You know, I got converted. I became a follower of Jesus in a church where, where, where senior leaders of the church thought that apartheid was a really good way of organizing the world, right? That white people were uh, genetically and inherently more intelligent than black people and that allowing different groups uh, to develop separately under the paternalistic, uh, enlightened guidance of the white tribe uh, was actually a really good way to organize society, right? Um, and I, I didn't share that view. And, and so then what do you, how do you live that out as a young Christian? I came across Elul, and what Elul said was this. I found it so helpful. I said, you know what? To be salt and light in the world, Christians need to be involved in political parties across the entire spectrum. Because as Christians are involved in political parties across the spectrum, what they are doing is bearing witness to the fact that the kingdom of God will never be brought in by any one political party or agenda. No political party will bring in the utopia, have the answers to all the questions. And so actually, Christian involvement across the political spectrum is an important way of both engaging as salt and light, but also relativizing the human political agenda to say in and of itself, it can't solve all the problems of the world. Only God can do that. I thought, yes, that's right. So in our church, you know, it's good to have people who, uh, you know, maybe on the hard left, you know, the green left, and the center left, and the moderate left, and the center right, and the hard right, and to have views that range across all those continua on all the different issues, and then together come together to say, okay, what, what do you think being salt and light for Jesus would look like? That's not easy, right? Now, you might also then say, but hang on, Mark. And I totally get this. You'd go, 
I don't even have the energy to think about that stuff, man. <laughs> I just want to get through today. Like, holy crap. I just want to I just want to go have a cup of coffee and a cup of tea and watch some Netflix this afternoon and you know iron some shirts and try and pretend it'll all be okay like who am I to change that like I don't know like that's what I'm thinking um who am I to change the you know to change the world really now do you know what's fascinating who was Jesus speaking to here in this text was he, you know, was he speaking to the attenders at the World Economic Forum in Davos? He was speaking to the nobodies. That's what we looked at last week. The, the, the nobodies, the demon-possessed, mentally ill, completely irreligious nobodies. And, he, and you know what? In, in God's economy, it's normal, ordinary people, the nobodies, the people on the margins and the fringes of society through whom God works and through whom he then brings his, his light and his love into the world. So you know what? You don't have to, you don't have to be a you know, private jet-owning, World Economic Forum-attending member of the global elite. Though if you are, I'd love to talk to you particularly about tithing. Um, you, you know... <laughs> You don't have to be that to change the world. You've just got to be someone, and I'll tell you what the key is, right? In your ordinariness, in my ordinariness, in our finitude, in our brokenness, you know what it needs? We need Jesus to to rub his presence into us. We need to have Jesus as salt to stop the decay in our own lives deeply. That's why Jesus says you've got to be born again. You've got to get God so deeply into you that everything changes. And you've got to let the light of God shine into you so that you can reflect him out. So we don't go into the world arrogant and puffed up. We're going to change the world. We go in as people who've been transformed by Jesus' love. And we just offer that to people as we can. And we do that as a church family. That's why it's really important we belong to a church, right? Because it's hard. And the role of the church, according to Jesus is to go into all the world, um, tell people the good news about himself, invite them in, and then teach them to obey everything he commanded. Like he's got, we've got to teach each other to figure this stuff out, to actually live it out. And here's the final thing, you know, you can't... One of the, the, the difficulties with this grand vision of changing the world um, is we can think we've got to change everybody. But world change, it doesn't, you can't change everybody, but you can change somebody. So find the somebody you can change, like the person sitting next to you. Can you be salt and light for the person sitting next to you? Help them, help them restrain the brokenness in their lives and shine a bit of love and light into them. Just do that. Actually, and maybe the somebody you need to change needs to be you to start with. Before you even worry about the person next to you, maybe it's you. Maybe it's you that God wants to change this morning. I certainly know it's me. I certainly know I have such a long way to go. I, I need so much more of God in my life. I need so much more of the restraining grace and presence of Jesus to hold back the evil and, and then to shine his light into my life so I can live well for him. And maybe so the somebody you've got to change, start with you. But then start with the somebody at home. Start, start being salt and light with the somebody you're raising, your little kids. <laughs> it's a vision for parenting. And it's a vision for your workplace. When you go to work tomorrow, who are the somebodies that God's going to call you to be salt and light to? Just, just the people you come across. And you know, that matters far more than 
great virtue signaling on social media. It really does. And then, you know, we can build a social movement around this, but it always starts, according to Jesus, with nobodies being salt and light for somebody because we've been loved by God who loves everybody. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, uh, thank you for your great love. And I pray for our, our church here that you will help us to be so full of you, to be, to be so salty with your goodness and presence and so full of your light that we can't help but, but be agents of change for good in the world. And start with us, Lord, and use us in whatever sphere of influence we have with the somebodies around us. And then I pray in this election year, as, I, as we think about state and federal elections coming, uh, Lord, help us to take our responsibility as citizens in this very seriously. And uh, gosh, who knows, Lord, what we could achieve for you. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song, and I can hear the kids starting to approach, and that's a great joy. So this is our last song. It's our offertory song. So what we do here is we take up a collection, and if you're a regular part of our church, this is how you, how you, you, you can support the church. If you're visiting with us this morning, I feel no obligation to give. Be very free to pass the bags by. Uh, let's stand and sing together, and then uh, Kimberly will dismiss us, and we'll go and uh, continue having some uh, time together down the back.